Hello, I'm Al Head, Director of the Alabama State Council on the Arts, and I want to welcome you to Alabama Arts Radio Series. Each week we will be introducing you to some exceptional artists and other special people who make the arts happen in Alabama. This program will feature the visual, performing, and literary arts, as well as folk arts, which are so much a part of our state's rich cultural heritage. Alabama is the home of a wide range of gifted and creative people who make important contributions to our unique cultural environment. Each week, members of the council staff will be visiting with some of these special people and introducing you to some of our state's most valuable human resources. Hi, I'm Deb Boykin, and this week we're talking with bass player and one of the original Swampers from Muscle Shoals, David Hood. Hello, Deb. (laughs) Hi, David. Welcome to the program. Tell us a little bit about your early life. Did you always know you wanted to be a musician? I always loved music. There was always music in my house uh, from the radio or from the phonograph. My father was a music lover, and uh, the radio was always on, and something, and or or he was playing records, and it, it seemed to me at the time he had a lot of records. Now, now, when I compare it to my collection, he had very few, but they were big '78 records and mostly big band music and some classical music. And so I grew grew up hearing that and what was on the radio. I never really thought I'd be in music, but I always had a deep love. My father was a small businessman in Sheffield, where where I grew up. He was in the tire business when I was growing up. And so when I was 13 or so, I started going down to the store and hanging out and, and working, running errands at first, and then slowly learning how to change tires and do other things that are done at the tire store. And so it was always presumed, I, I guess the word is, that I was going to be in the business and take over the business for my father. While I was in high school, Jimmy Johnson and I were in the same grade in, at Sheffield High School. He had started a band, the Delrays. It was a sort of a copy of the band that influenced all of us around here, Hollis Dixon and the Keynotes. When I used to go hear Hollis play, I thought, man, that's just wonderful. I thought that was just the greatest thing in the world. And it was where I saw the first electric bass guitar. At first, I didn't even know that it existed. And I was in high school when this was going on, and uh, nowadays kids are already playing when they were my age. But I would go see Hollis and finally realized that the bigger guitar was the thing that was making the boom, 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 boom noise in the in the room. I would go see Jimmy and his band, the Delrays, and it really inspired me. I thought, well, gosh, I'd like to learn how to do that. When I was almost 18, right around my 18th birthday, I was still 17, I bought a guitar and uh, then later bought a, a bass. I started learning how to play, so I was later starting than Jimmy and a lot of the other guys that I work with. Uh, I was about four years behind them. But I, I loved it, and, and it seemed like I had an affinity for it, and I, I picked it up fairly quickly. I went from starting at 18 to playing on hit records by the time I was in my early 20s. We immediately started a band called the Mystics, and we played, just as the Delrays did, we played fraternity parties and school dances around the Alabama and Mississippi and 
some Tennessee and Georgia. It just got in my blood. I just loved it. And uh, I just recently have become aware that it was 50 years ago this week when the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan. And I can remember coming home from one of my jobs somewhere, Auburn or Tuscaloosa or Ole Miss, and hurrying home on a Sunday to be home in time to see the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I just was blown away. Prior to seeing the Beatles, most of our music that we played was... American rhythm and blues, black music, Bo Diddley and Jimmy Reed, Ray Charles. Those were the my heroes and the people that I, I loved, Chuck Berry. When the Beatles hit, all of a sudden there was white music that I that it really appealed to me and it was it had a little bit more complex structure, but still based based on rhythm and blues. So our band immediately learned every Beatles song we could learn in addition to the rhythm and blues songs. And we did that for about four years. The last job that my band played was May 14th, 1966. On May 15th, 1966, I played on Percy Sledge's follow-up to When a Man Loves a Woman, Warm and Tender Love. I went straight from Fraternity House down in uh, Tuscaloosa to going in, uh, to uh, Quinn Ivey's recording studio and recording with Percy. And it was a gold record. And so when you your first recording session or your first big recording session is a hit, all of a sudden people call you and want you to come play on their records. And so I, I had to learn quickly. I had been playing in the band and we didn't really know what we were doing we were just copying other people but when you record you have to come up with things yourself and it has to have a a form or format verse chorus construction of a song so i had to learn all that stuff really quickly i was i guess voted into the what were at the time was the fame gang which was the rhythm section at fame recording studios jimmy and roger hawkins the drummer and Spooner Oldham and uh, Junior Lowe were the guys that were playing for Rick at that time. They knew they needed another bass player or, or a bass player. Junior had been playing bass but was a guitar player as well and really wanted to play more guitar. So they called me one day at the tire store and said, David, come up here. We want to talk to you. And I went up and talked to them. And they said, we want you to be part of the rhythm section. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. So I would have to take off from work. I'd already been taken off from work from the tire store to play these fraternity parties and things on weekends, but now all of a sudden they were having recording sessions during the week. And so I'd have to say, look, I've got a session. I need to go. And they would let me go. I would make more in an hour or so working uh, in a recording studio than I was making all week at the tire store. Even though my father was the boss and the owner, it just didn't pay that much. That The writing was on the wall. I, sooner or later, I had to go and tell my dad that I'm going to leave. I'm just going to concentrate on music. And he said, son, you're making a mistake. You're throwing your life away. You're going to be hanging out with drunks and drug addicts and crazy people. And he was right, but I've enjoyed it very much. And you don't have to emulate those people to do what I do in, in music. You just have to love music enough and be stubborn enough to hang in there. And uh, I really never had any second thoughts after I I got to doing it because I was having success fairly quickly working with Jimmy and Roger Hawkins and Spooner at first, but later Barry Beckett. We would have remarkable 
success. Rick Hall was cutting great records. Quinn Ivey was cutting great records with Percy Sledge. Later on, we were starting to work with other producers who would bring artists to work with, and we were just cutting hit records. And you can't look back when that starts happening. How did it feel when you when people started coming in from other parts of the country to work with you guys? Well, it was it was great. Uh, at first, it was all black artists, and which was right up my alley because my favorite artists, like I've said, were all the rhythm and blues stars. Well, like Ray Charles or Chuck Berry or Jimmy Reed, those were my favorite artists. And and about the time that I was getting into recording, then it was Otis Redding, Sam and Dave, Johnny Taylor, and all those people. Don Covey had an album that was a collection, an Atlantic album. It was a collection of all these different R&B artists. I thought, man, it'd be so great to get to work with any one of these guys. And eventually I worked with every one of them, including Sam and Dave and Otis and, and all those. And uh, that was my first love was doing black music. And so working with the different people I worked with, it was just, I couldn't have thought of a better thing, a whole lot better than the tire store. And I love cars, but uh, the, this was great. Let's talk a little bit about bass playing and the role that has in, in putting a song together, because I'm not sure people really understand the, the, the important role of the bass in a piece of music. Well, the bass is hugely important, but you don't really miss it until they take it out of the mix or turn it off. When I first discovered the bass, it was at in a building which later became our one of our studios. Uh, it was the Naval Reserve Training Center in Sheffield, and the different girls' clubs would have dances there. And uh, that's where I first was aware of the bass. I would go into the room, and I loved the guitars and the drums, and I'd go watch. When I'd go to the back of the room, I would hear the doom, 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 doom. And so I'd go back up and look and look, and finally I realized that one of the guitars was a bigger guitar, and it was making that noise. In those days, the technology wasn't great. Amplifiers were not that good. So you couldn't really hear the bass if you were up close to the band. But if you got at the back of the room or even went outside, then you could hear it. And uh, I, I played trombone in a high school band, so I was used to working in a supportive role to the other instruments and in in, for the music. And that's what the bass does. It provides the foundation along with the drums. It's the doom, doom, doom sound and, and the music you hear. And it's a very important thing. And it, it, I think at first I would like to have been a trumpet player or I was a trombone player for a while. I'd like to have been a guitar player. But now that I'm playing bass for close to 50 years, I wouldn't change ever because it, it's a very important part. What are some of the favorite sessions you've worked on? Percy was my first recording artist that I worked with that had some success, and so I'll always have a great place in my heart for Percy Sledge. I got to work with uh, Etta James on one of her early recordings, Tell Mama, so uh, that's very important to me. And uh, even though I, I wasn't on any of his recordings himself, I worked with uh, Otis Redding, he was acting as a producer, and I learned a lot from working with Otis, and I've always been a big fan of his music. After that, I would have to say that the Staple Singers were a big part of my life. I, I enjoyed their music. They came from a gospel background, and I've always liked gospel music. And uh, taking their music and 
changing it, making it into more of a, not pop, but rhythm and blues or soul sound was a lot of fun, and they were a lot of fun to work with. So the Staple Singers were one of my favorites, and we worked with, uh, later on, worked with some different rock artists, Bob Seger, and Traffic was a lot of fun for me because it was a kind of a jazz-flavored version of rock. It had uh, elements of jazz and folk in their, their music, and that was a lot of fun because it was so different from what you see. Did you tour with them? I toured two years with Traffic, not all at one time, but a month here, a month there, in 1972 and 1973, and it was really the first time I'd ever been out and played at any big places. Before I started recording, it was fraternity parties and dances, and when I started recording, it was nothing but recording. In 72, we were asked to go on the road with them and so it was the first time I'd ever been in any of these big venues and played any concerts and it's the first time I'd really been around the country or even overseas it was a lot of fun very eye-opening but my first love is always going to be working in the recording studio you're making something there aren't you yeah and I'm I'm not an extrovert I don't know if I'm an introvert but I'm not an extrovert and I, I like making something creating something and I don't have to have the audience the producer and the engineer that's behind the glass and the other musicians that's the approval I seek uh, is if they like it then I'm happy we've been talking with David Hood one of the Muscle Shoals Swampers and one of the founding partners of the legendary Muscle Shoals Sound Studio as we go to break let's listen to I'll Take You There by the Staple Singers one of the many many hits recorded in that studio with bass by David Hood. Arts Radio Series is presented to you by the Alabama State Council in the Arts in cooperation with Troy University Public Radio. The Council is the official arts agency in Alabama with the mandate to support the broadest range of artistic resources throughout the state. The Council emphasizes educational programs that reach students of all ages and works to provide all sectors of the population with access to quality arts experiences. 
For information about the Council's grant program and various forms of technical assistance, call area code 334-242-4076 or visit our website at arts.alabama.gov. We're back talking with David Hood, bass player and original Muscle Shoals Swamper. We were talking earlier about you and Jimmy Johnson and Spooner and Jason Isbell and John Paul White and Candy State and recently appeared on David Letterman. It was an amazing performance. I would urge any of our listeners to go find that on YouTube and hear it because you all just meshed so well together. What was that like? It was a lot of fun. I had recorded with Candy Staten on that particular song. It was I Ain't Easy to Love, a song written by James LeBlanc and uh, Angela Hacker. And Candy recorded it, and uh, that part of that recording session you see in the documentary Muscle Shows. When we were asked... To go to uh, do the David Letterman show, uh, it was to help promote the, the documentary. We talked about which which artist we were going to perform with, and it just came down to Candy. The powers that be thought, well, Candy will be good, but it would be great if we had some of the young artists with us. And so we got John Paul White and Jason Isbell to sing on the song with her. Spooner and myself and Jimmy and uh, John Paul White, Jason, and Candy all go to New York and collaborate with the Letterman Band. Paul Schaefer, Anton Figg, the drummer, Bones Malone, who is one of the horn players. He played baritone sax on that when we played that performance, but he plays everything. He plays trombone and trumpet and sax, plays all kinds of things. But we ran through the song one time and then taped it the next time. And it, so there was no rehearsal, really. We just got together and played it. I probably knew the song better than anyone because I'd worked on the original recording, but everybody got their parts right very quickly. The guys in the Letterman band are just ultimate professionals, and so they, they got it right off the bat. nailed it. <laughs> yeah, it was good. I'm very proud of that. Let's talk just a little bit about when you guys formed the Muscle Shoal Sound Studio. Was that... And sort of an intimidating leap to make. Well, it was uh, it was a little scary and in- intimidating in that we had a fairly successful situation going working with Rick Hall and the other producers that we were working with. We were working at Fame Recording Studios and at Quinn Ivey's re- Studios and also some other studios in Nashville and and around. We were doing good like that. We we could have stayed and kept doing that for quite a while, I think. But the opportunity came, Rick was wanting to start a, a, a record label, and he wanted to get us to sign an exclusive contract where, we're, where we would only work with, with him. And we were not really wanting to do that. We enjoyed working with the other people. By that time, we'd started working with Jerry Wexler and Tom Dowd from Atlantic Records, Al Bell, and people from Stax records and we enjoyed that part of it nothing against rick but we liked the variety of artists and songs and things that we were working doing with all the other people a studio in town it was uh, fred beefus's studio became available fred had built a studio and didn't really know what to do with it after he had it and he knew that jimmy and roger had always loved the idea of being in the studio business and so he approached them and they knew they would need other musicians to work with them. And so they approached Barry and I to 
leave Rick and start our own studios. And so it was very, very scary because we thought we're walking away from something that's working and we're going to take a chance on something that may not work. Luckily, it did work after a while. It, when you record something, it's about six or eight months to a year and a half before when you record it before it comes out. After we were in our studios, we would record. We recorded with Cher. We recorded with Boskags. We recorded with John Hammond. We recorded with a lot of different artists. There were no hits at first. Finally, we recorded with Lulu, a Scottish girl that was recording for Atlantic. And uh, we had a semi-hit with her on a song called Oh Me, Oh My. And then Amit Erdogan, who was the president of Atlantic Records, came down and brought R.B. Greaves, and we cut Take a Letter Maria. And that was the first big hit. It was a really big hit. Once we got that hit under our belt, it seemed like it was easier, and we could relax and just concentrate working and not worry so much about paying the bills we could still had to pay the bills, but we weren't worried that we were going to be able to because we knew that once you cut a hit, you'll stay busy cutting records for other people because that's what everybody wants is a hit record. So if you're cutting hit records, you'll have work. You'll have people lined up to right. come. Can you describe what a, a session would be like when someone came in? It's not like this anymore, uh, unfortunately. I wish it was still that way, but things change. But when we were in our very busiest days, there would be a different artist to work with nearly every week. Uh, a producer would come in with the artist. He would have a list of songs to record, or he would have songwriters come and play songs, and he would pick them while we were there. But when we had a, a song picked, Barry usually would make a chord chart, just a very rough loose chord chart using the number system they call they call it the Nashville number system but we never heard of that till later on but uh, where you use numbers to represent the chords that way if you have to change keys you don't have to rewrite the chart because the numbers will work it's like the if you know anything about uh, music theory, it's kind of like figured bass, where they would denote different chords with Roman numerals. Well, we would just use Arabic numbers, one, two, three, four, you know, so on. That's a very good shorthand for writing out the structure of a song. Well, Barry would make the chart. Barry got really good at making charts. We got really good at reading the charts. And so he'd hear a song, write the chart. We could get it in the first or second take if we knew what the producer and the artist wanted. So with that way, we could do several songs a day, as many as 10 songs sometimes a day, which is quite a bit when you think. Usually starting from a rough, not knowing the song, it would take us about an hour to go from not knowing the song to getting a, a cut good enough to to go out to be somebody's record. That's amazing. That's amazing. And But that would be the bare track. That would be bass, drums, guitar, piano, and maybe a pilot vocal or something like that. Then they would take what we recorded and put horns on it or strings or other voices and things and finish it. But we could get those bare tracks about an hour a song, which is remarkable. You don't see many people doing that nowadays. Did you enjoy working with the rock and roll folks after having started off more rhythm and blues? Yeah, I, I like a variety. If you keep doing the same thing after after a while, you get a little stale with it. You can't think of any, you don't have any new ideas. So to do different genres of music during the course of a week or a month or so keeps you 
your brain working and you don't get in a rut. I really did enjoy working with the different artists, and I still like that. I'm working uh, right now, preparing to work with a, an Irish writer, singer, songwriter, uh, be in the first week of March. And he sent me by MP3 on the computer, which is something we never heard of before, but that's how I get my music now. I, I got it on the computer, and I've been listening to songs and making myself rough chord charts where when I do go and record with him, I'll already be a little bit You'll prepared. And I, I like the idea of doing different things. It keeps my mind moving, don't get stuck in a rut. What do you think about the, the new documentary about Muscle Shoals? Were you pleased with the way that turned out? Yes, I'm very pleased. Uh, these guys who did this, made this documentary, Stephen Badger was the producer. Greg, Freddie Camilleer was the director. Neither had ever made a film before, but they were big fans of film and music. They Just by chance, they were driving through the area, taking a car from Virginia to New Mexico. I think they just saw a sign or something on the road that said Muscle Shows, and they stopped thought they'd check it out and realize that there had been no movie made about the music. At the time they came and started talking to Jimmy and I about this, we had already experienced three or four other people wanting to make a documentary or a movie about Muscle Shoals music, and it never worked out. It just, you know, they would get so far and they'd run out of money or this or that, and it just never worked out. So when Freddie and Stephen came to us, I thought, oh, well, here comes another one. They persisted, and they took almost four years to do it, but they made a wonderful movie. And it's been a wonderful thing for the Muscle Shoals music scene in particular, but the Muscle Shoals area in general. It's, it shows the beauty of the area, but also shows what goes on and what went on in the music industry and shows where it can go. So it's been a great thing, and I'm very happy with the way the movie turned out. I heard someone about my age say not long ago, having seen the documentaries, the person said, I didn't realize that the soundtrack of my life was made in Muscle Shoals. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the way a lot of people feel. All these familiar songs came out of this one little town in North Alabama. When I say that I'm not really a person who likes to perform in front of crowds, I don't think Jimmy or Roger or Barry or Spooner or any of the others that do what we do really cared about that either. We all love to record. and I mean, the thrill we get is hearing it back in the playback speakers and hearing it on the radio or hearing it on, on record. When we, we were doing all this work all those years, we were not getting much acclaim. We didn't really care because we were happy with the work we were doing. We were getting our job is just hearing it back, hearing it on the radio. or You created it and let it yeah, go. Yeah, and, and that was it. We didn't care whether people came in, in our parking lot or wanted our autograph. We never cared about that. So we're getting all this acclaim belatedly, and in some ways I'm a little, I feel a little awkward with it, and in some ways I'm even bugged by it a little bit. But I'm so proud of what we've done and what we've created, and I'm glad that people appreciate it. I, I, I love that. Well, I'm I'm glad, too, because you really have a, a wonderful body of work for people to appreciate, and we appreciate you spending time with us this afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been my pleasure, and I plan to keep on doing this until I don't do anything. <laughs>
<laughs> well, that, that's good news for us all. Thank you, David. This program was brought to you by the Alabama State Council on the Arts and the Alabama Center for Traditional Culture. Technical production by Steve Grauberger. All radio programs can be heard online at alabamaartsradio.com. Series theme music, The Bounds of Beauty, was composed and performed by Scooter Muse. Mm-hmm.